0: Second Kings three. We'll read that chapter. In the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned twelve years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless he clung to the sin of jeroboam the son of nebat which he made israel to sin with with which he made israel to sin he did not depart from it now misha king of moab was a sheep breeder and he had to deliver to the king of israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams but when ahab died the king of moab rebelled against the king of israel so king jehoram marched out of samaria at that time and mustered all israel And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of Seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not for... Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that... Heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir HaRaseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was about to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read together, let's sing from Psalm 7, stanzas 3 and 4. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning is the whole of chapter 3 of 2 Kings. And we won't read it again as it's quite a long chapter. But you would be helped by having your Bibles open also because there are a few textual issues that we're going to have to work through. So... It will be helpful to have your Bibles open to see the verses that we're working with. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, once again, in 2 Kings, we find ourselves with a number of very difficult questions. And the one that probably, as you are reading, stood out for you the most is why the chapter ends the way that it does. What are we to make of that kind of ending? What are we supposed to learn from it? We've seen this already in a number of chapters that end in such a way that, that force us to stop and ask questions, to consider, what does this mean? What are we to make of this? And, and that's a, becoming a normal thing in the book of Kings. It's good to remember the book of Kings was written by prophets Not just to record the facts of history, to record what happened, but also to cause us to reflect on the things that God has done and what those things teach us about God Himself, about His character, and also about our lives. And oftentimes, as in this chapter, the lessons are not spelled out explicitly. They're meant to be for you to reflect on, to meditate on, to consider. And it's good for us to know this also when we do our personal Devotions. Sometimes when we don't know the answer, the reason for that is because we're supposed to stop and think and take some time even to pray, to ask God, what is this supposed to mean? Well, this is good because in this way, the author of Kings also helps us to prepare ourselves to read our own history, to look at what God does in our times and ask God, what does this mean? What are we to make of this? How do we see your hand in this? The truth is, in real life too, the answers don't just fall out of the sky. God doesn't declare from heaven what He thinks about everything that happens in our lives, in our times. He gives us His Word. He commands us to read. He shows us what He's done in the past. And He tells us, meditate, pray, think about these things, and you will learn. And with time, we we gain wisdom, and understanding as God teaches us through these accounts uh, about what He would like us to see also in our times. Now, as I mentioned, this chapter does have a few textual issues in a couple of places, and we'll work through those, and I trust that they will become clear enough as we as we do that. What this chapter highlighted for me, here's the two lessons that spelled out for me, and you can take a look at your own Bibles and see if you see these as well. Two lessons. On the one hand, the majesty of God, his total set-apartness, holiness from sin. Also in his faithfulness to his covenant with Jehoshaphat, he has regard for Jehoshaphat. And we know that's because Jehoshaphat is the the great-great-grandson of David. We also see God's majesty and His wisdom in confounding the Moabites. He's one step ahead of them. He tricks them. He fools them. That's the one lesson, the majesty of God. And we'll see that as we work through the chapter. The other thing we see is the hideousness of sin. By the fact that God calls evil, evil, even when perhaps it's less evil than other instances of evil. I'll show you what I mean by that by the fact that God demands absolute and total repentance from King Jehoram, by the fact that God wreaks havoc among the nation of Moab that had refused to honor him, and ultimately at the end of the chapter, by the fact that God allows sin at certain times and certain places in history to be put on display in all of its ugliness so that we would learn to fear him and to run to him and to run away from sin. So those are the the two main lessons that I see standing out in this chapter. The majesty of God and the hideousness of sin. First, let's take notice of the distance that God keeps from sin. We see that God refuses to call it anything else but what it is and refuses to have anything to do with it. I'm speaking here with reference to Jehoram. Jehoram is the next oldest son of Ahab and Jezebel. So his brother Ahaziah, uh, we looked at him a few weeks ago in chapter 1, and he died. And so Jehoram comes to the throne. And his reign brings a, a difficult question to the foreground. It's one that Americans have had to deal with recently. What do you do with the lesser of two evils? How do you handle the lesser of two evils? I can't help but imagine there were many worshipers of God in Israel... In that day, who were glad to see Jehoram ascend to the throne. This man was, in name at least, a worshipper of Yahweh. That's what Jehoram means. It would have been then a a true breath of fresh air to see a king in the northern kingdom uh, worshipping Yahweh. And even showing some commitment to worshipping Yahweh. Uh, he, He ordered the pillars of Baal to be removed, and he reinstated as the official state religion the worship of of the true God. So compared to his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, Jehoram is a massive step forward in the right direction. And yet at the same time, Jehoram, his sins were the exact same as Jeroboam's sins. This is a long time ago, more than a hundred years back. And yet God remembers those sins, and they're still the same sins. And Jeroboam was soundly condemned in his time for instituting the calf worship of God. It was wrong then, and it remains wrong a century later. And so what we see in the opening verses of this chapter is that although God does recognize such a thing as the lesser of two evils, God, God clearly acknowledges that, He still calls it by its name, which is evil. And what a blessing it is that we worship a God who does not change. What he calls evil in one century, he calls evil in the next century and in every other century. When God speaks, God speaks words of eternal truth. He holds no double standards. He does not bow down to sin and call it something else because he figures well it's the best I can hope for. God's righteousness is unchanging. And so we see God holding himself far above evil. He does not bow down to it nor excuse it, no matter how much we might be inclined to do so. We see this also in his first dealings with Jehoram. First, we have Moab rebelling against Israel. Uh, they had been put into subjection under Israel, under King Omri, so that's the father of Ahab. And throughout the reign of Ahab, uh, they, they served Israel. And verse 4 tells us they had to pay a tribute every year of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Now, the text doesn't say whether this subjugation of Moab was a good thing or not. Remember, it happened under Omri. And it's good for us to recognize here the text simply states what happened. It doesn't say whether it was right or not. In fact, Israel had been specifically commanded not to do this to Moab. They were given the land of Canaan, and they were told uh, to remove the inhabitants of the land of Canaan for their sin but not the surrounding areas. So in Deuteronomy 2, verse 9, the Lord told Moses, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given Ar, that was that land, uh, to the people of Lot for possession. So if you know that, if you've you've read your, your Israelite history, that casts a shadow really over this entire chapter. Well, amazingly, King Jehoshaphat decides to join, so that's the king of Judah, he decides to join King Jehoram. And it's amazing because this is the exact same mistake, if you remember your your, your history of kings well, it's the exact same mistake that Jehoshaphat made way back in 1 Kings uh, chapter 22 when he went and joined Ahab to, to go fight in battle uh, and, uh, against the Arameans. And he even allowed Micaiah to be imprisoned and still went and joined Ahab in that battle. And in fact, he uses the exact same words in this episode. Just as he said to Ahab before, he says, I will go, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So uh, the author of Kings quotes him word for word to remind us uh, Jehoshaphat's making the same stupid mistake that he's made before. And in fact, this time it's, it's even more amazing because if you remember well, last time Jehoshaphat at least had the good sense to inquire of the Lord. Remember he asked, isn't there some prophet of the Lord that we can consult with before going off into battle? This time he doesn't even do that. He just goes with King Jehoram. Maybe he was afraid to ask Yahweh because of what happened the last time. Maybe he didn't want to cause a scene the way that it happened last time, or maybe... Maybe he suspected that God was not with him on this campaign. It happens sometimes, doesn't it, that we struggle over a decision that we have to make, but we refuse to ask the Lord for help in this decision because we already know what God thinks. Like a child that doesn't want to ask his parents for permission because he already knows they're going to say no, he doesn't even ask him, he just goes and does it. We do this sometimes. We relate to God in this way. And even Jehoshaphat, who is called a good king uh, later on, he's called a good king, but he makes the same mistake. He forgets that God's guidance and God's permission, if you want to call it that, is there for our our good. God's interested in our well-being. In any case, Jehoshaphat either forgot or abandoned his principles and, and went off to war with Jehoram. So from our perspective, looking at this, the campaign's already off to a very bad start. The two kings take a route uh, through the land of Edom, and we're told that the king of Edom also joined them, and that's because Edom, just like Moab, had also been subjugated under under, in this case, under Judah. So Moab was under Israel. Edom had been subjugated to Judah. And so their king was sort of a puppet king, a deputy king who, who would just do whatever Jehoshaphat said. And that's also then why they had access through the land of Edom. They could go through that land without being uh, harassed. The land of Edom, just to give you the geography, there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and you cross the River Jordan, you have Moab in the north, Edom in the south. So that's the, the connection uh, there between those lands. Well, quickly you see the campaign turns to disaster. They're wandering through the land of Edom. And the three armies found themselves in the middle of the desert without any water. Uh, they were marching along a stream bed. And so it, it makes sense that this happened. They, they figured there would be water there in the stream bed. And they discover uh, that there is none. Well, immediately Jehoram, the king of Israel, despairs. He cries out, Alas! Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see in Jehoram the effect of a lack of relationship with God. Notice the difference between these two kings in their hour of trial. When, When trial strikes, Jehoram immediately despairs. He just concludes that God must be against me. God must hate me. That's his conclusion. And we see that, don't we, in in other people that we know. Perhaps we've seen it before in ourselves when we're not in relationship with God and trials come. We just conclude God must be against us. Well, that's how Jehoram responds because he had no relationship with the Lord. Jehoshaphat turns to God in the hour of trial. He turns to the God he knew, to the God that he had relationship with, and he prays to God. Even though Jehoshaphat should have done that right away at the beginning of the campaign, he finally does do so now. He turns to his God because he knows his God. He doesn't despair. He doesn't assume that his God must be against him. But he assumes that his God must have a good purpose for what he's bringing them through. He knows that he can turn to his God and find help as he has done before. And so he asked if there's any prophet of God whom they might inquire through uh, with. And the answer comes from the servants of the king of Israel in verse 11. They say, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elisha. That's obviously some colloquial expression to refer to to best friends. Remember, they didn't have faucets in those days where you could turn on the faucet and wash your hands. You'd have to have someone take a bucket of water and pour it, and you can wash your hands, and then you do that in the reverse for for your friend. And so it's a way of saying this is how close Elijah and Elisha were, that Elisha was so close to him that he would be able to pour water over the hands of Elijah. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom go down to Elisha. Well, when they do, we're once again confronted with the fact that God refuses to have anything to do with evil. It's the second time God shows his set-apartness, his refusal to touch evil. Not only does he call evil by its name right at the beginning of the chapter, but his memory goes back a long ways, and he refuses to accept anything other than genuine, complete repentance. The king of Israel was finally coming to him, but he was only coming because he needed him, not because he had repented. It's true he removed the pillar of Baal, but there's no mention of restoring the land of Naboth. There's no public show of repentance for the sins of his father and mother, and he's still worshiping the calves of Jeroboam we hear every week, as we heard earlier this morning, that God punishes the children for the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. And that's, of course, assuming that there's no repentance along those generations. And one of the reasons for that is because the children imitate the sins of their father, just as the children of Bethel imitated their fathers and mocked Elisha and were were judged for it. So we see also with Jehoram. In Jehoram's case, he may not have been as bad as his mother and father, and indeed he wasn't as bad, but there was still no repentance, no tearing of clothes, no sackcloth on on his body, no ashes, no restitution of stolen land. If we think God really should have just been satisfied with what he could get, after all, this is pretty good for the northern kingdom. If we think that about our God, then we don't know our God, his hatred for sin, Goes back far deeper and far longer than any of us can understand. So when Jehoram sent for Elisha, the word of God to, to Jehoram was, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Now Jehoram protests. He says, No, it is the Lord or Yahweh who's called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And we have no way of knowing how sincere Jehoram was. Was he just trying to butter up the prophet by acknowledging uh, God's power? Did he really believe it? Was he just trying to get some favorable word? We can only uh, speculate. But in any case, repentance that comes without confession is no repentance at all. I hope you can see that in Jehoram's repentance. Repentance that comes without acknowledging how far one has fallen from God's grace is not repentance. Jehoram apparently believed that if he just if he just turned over a new leaf now, if he just started saying and doing the right things now, then he could leave the past in the past. But that is not how it works. Repentance involves recognizing. Our sin, how serious our sin is in God's eyes, how desperate our condition is before God, how absolutely unworthy we are to receive God's grace. That's real repentance, and you don't see any of that here in Jehoram. And what we see is that God rejects that kind of shallow, superficial repentance, because that kind of repentance is no repentance at all. There is no sorrow. For sin, and if there's no sorrow in for, for sin, there will never be any true joy and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. That's how the Catechism phrases it. And so Elisha says in verse 14, "As the Lord of Hosts lives, if it were not that I had regard for Jehoshaphat, I would neither look at you nor see you." It's a very heavy word, but it's a reminder of who our God is. He detests sin to a degree that we cannot even begin. To understand, and he refuses to accept anything less than total absolute confession and repentance from sin. Well, in this word, we do see a note of God's grace. You see that there? He said, if it were not for my regard for Jehoshaphat. And that's a note that we want to keep in mind. There is there is one way that undeserving sinners can find God's grace. And that is by being counted together with the son of David. Jehoram and the entire nation of Israel deserve very much to be cast away from God forever and left to die in the desert of Edom. For the mountain of of sins and offenses that they had committed before God, they deserve no better than that at all, and especially because their repentance was not even repentance. And yet we see they find some of God's grace because of God's faithfulness to Jehoshaphat. And not even because of Jehoshaphat's worthiness, because we see him failing as well, but because of God's promises to David, Jehoshaphat's ancestor. Understand this well, brothers and sisters. All of us, just like Jehoram, are worthy of God's condemnation, God's judgment. The only place of safety the only place where there's hope of receiving God's grace is in fellowship with the Son of David, which is Jesus Christ, and because of God's absolute commitment to keeping his promises. To so understand this already here, a thousand years before Christ, we see already how God's grace works and how salvation and life can only ever be found in the place where God has promised to provide it and God gives it for the sake of his own name his own commitment to keeping his promises none of us are worthy of god's grace and apart from christ none of us will ever find it number 3 we see the shrewdness by which god confounds sinners That's especially with respect to Moab. Whether Israel should have been at war with Moab or not is not even the point here. We know that they they shouldn't have been in this war in the first place. But God used Israel as a tool to bring His judgment on Moab. And we see that that judgment comes by the same means by which God brought salvation to Israel and Judah. Just like the gospel is a two-edged, a double-edged sword, bringing salvation to some and judgment to others. Just like the, the water of the flood carried Noah and his family to safety while drowning the rest of the world. So it was here also, the, the, the means of life for Israel and Judah, the water that they so desperately needed, would also become the means of death for Moab. Moab. Elisha calls for a musician. It's not clear what exactly what role the musician had here. But evidently music was used as a gift by which a prophet's heart and mind would be called up to heaven and open to the voice of God. If you think that's strange, it's really not that different from the way that music functions even now. We use music in a similar way when we sing God's praises. We don't just recite the Psalms, though we could, but we sing the Psalms, because music has a special power to call our hearts up and my, our hearts and minds up to higher things, to open our minds to hear God's voice, and so that's the effect that the the music also had for Elisha. The musician played, and it says the hand of Yahweh came upon Elisha, and he spoke. Now here's our first textual uh, problem. I, I take issue with the ESV's translation of what he he tells him. The ESV Uh, In the Hebrew, Elisha commands the people to make this dry stream bed full of pits. He commands them to dig pits. The ESP takes it instead as a a prophecy about the future and and interprets the word pits as pools. But I I take it as a command, and that's traditionally how it has been understood. If you have a King James or a New King James, it will also say pits. Um, Because the Israelites were standing in a dry stream bed... So, so the water was all gone, and what God is commanding them to do is dig some holes there, which would have obviously been a strange command to hear at the time until you knew what God was going to do with it. Well, the pits, they served a double purpose. The most obvious purpose, as far as the Israelites would have been concerned, was to trap the water that God was going to send. He was going to send a torrent of water through this valley, and it would get trapped in these little pits, so that they'd have water for themselves and and for their horses. Otherwise, it would just be a torrent of water that would pass through and and be gone, and they would still uh, end up thirsty. What the Israelites didn't know, and what only God could have planned, is that those same pits, which would become Pools of water would also serve to bring destruction to the Moabites. At sunrise, the Israelites would have looked south. So remember, Moab or excuse me, the Moabites would have looked south. So they're up in Moab, which is north. The Israelites are in, in the land of Edom, which is south of there. So they're looking southward, and the sun rising in the east would have reflected, as a typical sunrise does, with a red glow off of the water. Uh, so don't think of the entire area being covered with water, otherwise all the Israelites would have been drowned in it. But instead, it's covered with all these hundreds of thousands of little pools of water as each man dug his own little, little pit. And from the Moabites' perspective, because they're used to seeing this valley and they knew it was dry as dust, from their perspective, only one thing could possibly explain the hundreds of thousands of little red pools of liquid they figured the armies of Israel and Judah, an unlikely alliance in the first place, they had turned on each other and killed each other. And so it is that the the godless, child-sacrificing, idol-worshipping Moabites were led to their destruction by the very same means that God used to deliver his people. And we see in this not only the righteousness of God to execute judgment on a nation whose sin had been filled to its brim, just like the Canaanites had been uh, centuries earlier, but also the surpassing wisdom and the cunning of God, who, as as Psalm 18 says, uh, with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Or as Paul says, who catches the crafty in their craftiness. We want to see God's wisdom in confounding sinners. Whether Israel should have been at war with Moab or not is is not even the point. God used them to punish a nation whose sin had reached its fullness. Well, still speaking under the hand of God, Elisha then ordered the Israelites to attack every fortified city and every choice city and to fell every good tree, to stop up all the springs of water and to ruin every good piece of land with stones. It was an absolute, utter uh, destruction of a land that was under God's curse. Now, I want to stop and just address a, a concern in connection with this command. If you know your Bibles well, in Deuteronomy 20, Moses actually explicitly forbade doing this kind of thing. Deuteronomy 20 verse 19, he tells the Israelites, when you besiege a city for a long time and make war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you may not cut them down. And, and there's another place where they're also forbidden to, to uh, throw stones over the fields. And so both of these actions were were forbidden by God. Well, in this case, the only conclusion that we can give is that God has the right to make exceptions for His rules of warfare. Under normal circumstances, Israelites were not allowed to do this. In this case, the land of Moab itself received the curse that belonged to the people of Moab. Just as God cursed the earth when Adam and Eve sinned, So God cursed the land of Moab because of the sins of its people. And that's exactly then what the Israelites did. They chopped down every good tree. They threw stones all over the fields. Every farmer in our church can imagine the the devastation that that brings, especially when you're working with fragile uh, iron plows pulled by by cattle, uh, which would have utterly destroyed all all of their equipment. Uh, It was a complete and utter destruction. And the seriousness of this judgment should tell us something about the seriousness of the godlessness and the immorality in Moab. This was not a judgment that was given to hardly any other nation. But so immoral was Moab that this is the judgment God had reserved for them. So God cursed their very land, to devastate it for the sin that was committed within it. And he used the Israelites to carry that judgment out. They went through the land and completely ruined it. And they killed every Moabite, it says, that they encountered along the way. We can only begin to imagine the horror that, uh, of this day of judgment for the Moabites. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to see not only the perfect righteousness and majesty of God in such a horrific judgment, but we also need to see by that same judgment how truly weighty and serious our sin is before Him. If we want to know our God truly, if you want to know the living God, you need to know that judgments like this are in keeping with His sense of horror at the, at the uh, sinfulness of sin, When they finally reached the city of Kir-Hereseth, which would have presumably been the capital city, because that's where the king was, it was clear to the Moabites that they were about to be exterminated forever. And so the king of Moab committed the ultimate act of desperation. In an act of worship to their god Chemosh, he took his oldest son, we don't know how old he would have been, possibly still a young boy, he hung him on the wall and he set his boy on fire. The next line in this, in this text is extremely difficult to interpret. The ESV says, There came great wrath against Israel. Well, if that's the right way to interpret it, then there's two possibilities. Either it's the wrath of God, or it's the wrath of their God, Chemosh. If it's the wrath of God, that makes this verse really hard to explain. Why does God punish Israel in response to the sin of Moab? That in itself doesn't have to be a deal-breaker for us. God does many things that we don't understand. And if that's what the text says, then we should accept it and, and learn from it. We could interpret this as the wrath of Chemosh. We know that behind every false god, there is a real demonic power. It's possible that that was the case as well. But I don't think that either of these are the right way to interpret the verse. And I have two reasons. One is that it's very unusual that the text doesn't tell us anything about the kind of wrath, the manner of wrath that came on Israel. Nowhere else in the Bible do you read about... The wrath of God in some generic sense, at least not in, in narrative. There's, there's threats about, you know, repent lest the wrath of God come. There's, there's sort of summaries of history that the wrath of God came in many forms. But never do you get it where it speaks of a single event and, and just talks about it vaguely as the wrath of God. That's not the way that history is written, especially kings. Kings is detailed about these kinds of things. And so it always, whenever you get it in kings, there's, there's specific manifestations of wrath, whether it's fire from heaven, or plagues, or armies, or, or something like that. The, so that's one reason for saying that this is not the wrath of God. The other reason is that's not how the Hebrews themselves understood it over the centuries afterwards, uh, as this text was studied and meditated on, even before the coming of Christ. Here's how they understood it. First, the word that's here translated against can also mean upon. It's the same, the same word. And the difficult word here is the one that's translated wrath in Hebrew. It's khesif. Usually it refers to the wrath of God, but not always. Uh, nor does it always even mean exactly wrath. It can also mean something like disgust or loathing. Um, and it's used in that way in a few, a few verses in Scripture When the Jews themselves interpreted this text, you can see this, by the way, they translated it into Greek in the um, Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, uh, and, and also one of their historians, Josephus, interpreted it this way. The way they understood it is that it was disgust and horror that came upon the Israelites themselves when they saw what the king of Moab did. And I think that's the best way to understand this verse. When the Israelites saw the horrible thing that the king of Moab did to his own son, they were so filled with shock and horror at the sight of that kind of sin that they gave up the entire campaign. They regretted going out. They realized this whole thing about getting tribute from Moab was not even worth it when you're in the face of that kind of sin. I think when they saw what the king did, they were so shocked by it that they decided... This is not even a matter of tribute anymore. This is a matter where we need to leave these people in the hands of God. We shouldn't even be in this cursed land. In other words, God allowed them to see the real depravity of sin on full display. The depth of evil to which sin can go. And it shocked them that they could go no further. They wanted to go no further into the land of Israel. The uh, liberating troops in World War II had a very similar experience when they came into the death camps, into the concentration camps. Uh, they had come into the war for certain reasons, for their own self-preservation or for the preservation of, of the other united um, allied uh, countries. When they came into the land of Germany and saw the real horror of the death camps, a whole different sense of disgust and loathing came upon them. That Many of them said there was not a word that they could even say I think that's something like what happened here with Israel. Sometimes seeing another person's sin or another nation's sin can give us that very appropriate feeling of just repulsion and even nausea that reminds us how detestable sin is when it's lost and and goes its own way apart from God's grace. There are times when we witness such depravity of evil that it awakens our conscience and causes us to flee back to our God. Sometimes God allows that to happen, so we recognize sin for what it really is. The sin of child sacrifice in Moab is recognized in Scripture as the most extreme manifestation of godlessness. There's no sin. I mean that. No sin that was more detestable in God's eyes or aroused God's wrath more than the practice of child sacrifice. That's why whenever it talks about the extremes of sin, it goes back to the question of child sacrifice. Take Deuteronomy 12 verse 31. He says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in the way of the other nations for every abominable thing that the Lord hates that they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. It is because of this kind of godlessness that God had the people of Canaan removed from their land. And it should be a very sobering thought for us in Canada as well. Because if child sacrifice is the pinnacle of godlessness, and the point at which a nation's sin reaches its full, reaches the brim, and if God acts then to exterminate those nations, then we should fear for our nation as well. If Moab is under judgment, what about Canada? They sacrifice their children to Molech and to Chemosh. We sacrifice ours in the hundreds of abortion mills to the gods of money, careers, freedom, vacations, luxury. It's true, we don't do it on a wall for everyone to see, although bragging about abortions is becoming a trendy thing. But it makes no difference whether it happens in secret in the womb, in sterilized abortion clinics, or whether it happens in public on the wall of the city. To, to, to our God's eyes, it is one and the same sin. And that is great reason for us as a nation to fear and to pray to our God for mercy, that He would turn this nation around. If Muslims should invade us, or if North Korea should nuke us, we as a nation would deserve it for our sins we should still pray that god would have mercy but we should recognize god uses godless people to remove godless nations whose sin has filled their brim we ought to pray all of us for god's mercy on this country Our own personal opposition to the sins of this country does not make us any less members of this country. And whenever God's people have dwelt in any country that was under God's judgment, they experience that judgment as well, at least on earth. Our prayers to God should always be like the prayers of Daniel the prayers of Nehemiah filled with confession and repentance for whatever share we may have in this guilt, praying repentantly on behalf of our nation and thinking about what we could have done to do more to prevent it. When Israel witnessed the sins of Moab, it filled them with such a loathing and horror that they wanted nothing more to do with that accursed people. They can keep their tribute. And what the Israelites saw, they saw what sin becomes apart from God's grace. And it brought them, as it needs to bring them, back to perspective. We should have a gut level hatred for sin. Well, in some ways, verse 27 is a, is a warning and a foreshadowing for Israel because the reality is Israel's sin would eventually reach that same level of depravity. And we need to recognize. That Christ, this is the message of kings over and over, the, the king that God is sending, Christ, is the only answer, the only hope to escape such levels of evil and depravity and ultimately judgment. He is the only hope for mankind. Christ came willingly to bear the guilt of the nation and the guilt, really, of the entire human race. History can and and will only ever go in one of two directions. We will either be renewed and sanctified in Christ, or we will descend into that kind of evil. We've seen it recently in in the Holocaust in Germany. We're beginning to see it, or we're not even beginning. We are seeing it again in our country today. And we need to recognize that God detests and hates evil at the very core of what it is. He will never call evil anything but what it is. And He will never have anything to do with it. And He will ultimately cast all sin and evil into the depths of hell forever where it belongs. We need to recognize as we look at this, we need to recognize the hideousness, the horror of all sin, any rebellion against God and where it ultimately leads. We need to recognize that some of that sin still needs to be put to death within us. And we need to let the sight of that sin, as it did for Israel, to see that and to let the sight of it cause us to flee back to our God, to plead for His mercy, to find our forgiveness and our life and the hope for the human race in Christ alone. That's what baptism is also all about. We acknowledge the horror, the seriousness of sin. The Apostle Peter compares baptism to the flood, the same water that that uh, carried Noah to safety drowned the rest of the world. The same water that delivered the Israelites from Egypt drowned Pharaoh and his host. And we recognize when we bring our children to be baptized that the same water by which God sanctifies them and sets them apart is the water in which we otherwise deserve to be drowned. But we also then confess God's grace to us in Christ that extends also to our children There's no hope for salvation except by being washed in the blood of Christ. And in baptism, God brings us into that place of safety, that place of covenant with Christ. He promises us that all of his commitment to his promises for his own name's sake extends to us and to our children. He will never leave us, will never forsake us, and he will show little Alka his grace To the very end, his mercy, his steadfast love, and his persistence to call his own people to himself. That's the grace of baptism, and let us rejoice in that. Amen.